For our Sunday School lessons this October and every October, we're focusing on the theme of the Reformation. And we've been focusing on uh, little-known or underknown women of the Reformation, women who contributed to the cause of the Reformed faith, and yet women who most of us have never even heard their names before. The first week we looked at Anna Reinhardt, uh, who was from Switzerland, and last week we looked at Marguerite de Navarre, who was from France. Uh, she was born in 1492, and that was the same year that, yes, Alexander VI was elected Pope. <laughs> That's correct. You know your history well. This week, uh, we will be looking at uh, Louise de Coligny. Uh, she was born in 1555 from France. Uh, but before, do we remember anything about Marguerite de Navarre? from last week. Can you tell me a few things about her before we go ahead and study Louise de Colony? Yeah, she Heather. left a legacy to the next generation. Yes, and in what way? How? Uh, she influenced Elizabeth I and her own daughter. And her own daughter, yes. And so raising her daughter and influencing that next generation was a huge part of her legacy. What else about her do we know? Lois. She was a queen. She was well-educated and in three languages. Yes. Yes. What were the three languages? I didn't write that down. Oh, it was Pig Latin? No. <laughs> there was a hand over here. Uh, she had tremendous influence on Francis Brown. Yes. Yeah. She would fit. Nick? Um, her work was so widely appreciated, she was able to gain accolades from even um, secular. That's right. That's right. The historian couldn't, he, he praised her because her faith was so strong and genuine, even though he, he really was not friendly to Christianity in his writings. Linda? She never broke with the Catholic Church, and she called herself the Prime Minister of the Poor. Right. Well, anything else? She was very into the humanities and the arts, right? She, she really encouraged music. She was a poet. She was a writer. Um, good. Anything else anyone remembers? She was kind of the only, only real Christian influence it sounded like in her little kingdom left in France when they, uh, right? I mean, she kind of yeah. helped the Huguenots survive. She did. So she kind of created a refuge for the Huguenots to come to. She was close friends with John Calvin as well. Uh, he he uh, stayed with her for a time at one point, and they had correspondence back and forth over their lives. So she was a, a very influential and important figure, especially in the lives of the Huguenots. So let's move on to uh, Louise de Coligny. Uh, she was born September 23rd of 1555, and she was a daughter of Gaspard de Coligny and Charlotte de Laval. Now, we know virtually nothing about her childhood until she was about 15, 16, 17, but we do know about her parents and what kind of people they were. Now, Gaspar was, uh, in his youth, he spent it in sports and military exercises, and this was to prepare him for his future military service. He was a French nobleman, he was an admiral in the Navy, but eventually became better known as a leader of the Huguenots. He was raised Catholic, as most people in France were, but at some point he 
became reformed. We don't really know exactly when or how this happened, but the whole family became staunch Huguenots. His brother, uh, in fact, had been a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church, and he resigned his position and got married, which was quite a scandal at the time. Now, Gaspar's conversion to the Huguenot faith is somewhat of a mystery. The most common version is that he was converted while reading Calvin's Institutes, while he was a prisoner after the Battle of St. Quentin. Not the Battle of St. Quentin in World War I, that was 400 years later, the other one, I know you know what I'm talking about. Another biographer said he was simply reading the scriptures and was converted to the Reformed faith. Either way, we know for sure that Calvin himself wrote to him. And he, he told him, he says, God brought this affliction upon him, this affliction of imprisonment, in order that he might be withdrawn from the distraction of the world and be able to give his undivided attention to God's voice speaking through the scriptures, and that indeed is what happened. Now, Gaspar was released from prison in 1559, and he returned to France. Upon his return to France, he would profess his adherence to the Reformed faith, and this was not a small thing in those days. Now, before taking this public stance, he spoke to his wife, Charlotte, and he said to her, are you are you willing to profess the Reformed faith with me? Because it's a very risky thing, as you know. He reminded her that people who were Reformed had been burned at the stake. Their possessions had been confiscated and so on. And her reply, tell you what kind of a woman she was, she said, this has always been the case in the Church of Christ. And she pledged her Reformed faith. So they were devout Huguenots, and uh, Gaspar became the leader of the Huguenots, and their, their hope was that their daughters would remain faithful to Christ and carry on that legacy, defend their faith, and advance the faith. And they took great risks for their faith, and they paid a heavy price for it, as we'll see. Now, as, as an admiral and as a leader of the Huguenots, he was a very busy man, but he would write to his daughters, and he would encourage them Specifically, he would encourage them that they should not mourn the loss of worldly things if we have treasure in heaven, because nobody can take that treasure in heaven away from us. And this would undoubtedly influence them throughout their life. Luis was married at 15, or maybe 16, or maybe 17, we don't really know, to a Protestant, also a leader of the Huguenot, who, was, uh, who served alongside uh, Gaspar Charles de Telenay, and he was 20 years older than her. He, uh, like I said, he served alongside Louis's father. And though there had been fighting among Catholics and Protestants, there was a short time of peace, and so they took that opportunity to get married, and the peace did not last long. There was soon an anonymous letter that was sent to Charles, and it was warning him of some danger that was to come, but he read the letter, and he thought, you know, there really isn't any hard evidence for this. And he wasn't really willing to be suspicious of people just because he had heard that he should be suspicious of people. So he dismissed it, and it turns out he should have heeded that warning. A little bit of historical background here. In 1570, the Treaty of St. Germain was signed, 
And this was a, a new attempt to reconcile the Catholics and the Protestants in France. It brought a religious war to an end, so that was a good thing. Uh, Charles IX had uh, created this reconciliation, at least for a time, between these two parties. However, the treaty uh, angered the hardcore Catholics. And as you know, hardcore Catholics and hardcore Protestants don't mix well. Uh, the Guy family was the leaders of this hardcore Catholic movement, and they thought that the treaty was too favorable to the Protestants. Uh, Gaspar himself had actually, he was quite close with the king, and he, as the leader of the Protestants, had urged the king to take part in a war that was going on in Flanders. His idea is that if the French people could come together, Protestants and Catholics alike, if they could come together and join forces with the Prince of Orange against Philip II of Spain, then maybe they could actually get along. They'd have a common cause, they'd be fighting side by side. He thought this was a good idea and that maybe they could be reconciled. It didn't really work out that way at all. Uh, soon after this suggestion, a assassination attempt was made on his life. It failed. Uh, so he was coming out of the king's palace uh, in, in the Louvre, and he's shot and wounded, but he didn't die at that time. And it's thought that it was the Guy family who was responsible for this. They very much opposed the war. They very much opposed reconciliation between Catholics and Protestants. And when this event took place, it really stunned the people of Paris. So tensions in Paris were very high at this time. Just one day later, on August 23rd, a council was held, and in that council there was a decision made that they needed to finish the job. They needed Gaspar dead, and they decided that they would murder him and other Huguenot leaders. The following day, it's August 24th now, 1572, and Louise and Charles are asleep in bed when Louise wakes up to the sound of bells ringing. And so she's laying there in the dark, and she hears these bells, and she's confused, and then she hears some muffled voices where they are in the house there, and some commotion going on, and she doesn't know what's going on, but she just has this fear in her heart. The muffled voices get louder, and she can hear shouts coming, echoing up the stairs. And so she sits up and she whispers to her husband, Charles, who's now also awake, and she says to him, what's going on? Why are the bells ringing? She's confused, and she's really starting to get worried. Because as you know, her father had been shot just a few days before. So Charles tells her, stay here. He gets up and he goes to the door and he opens the door just enough so that he can hear what's going on. And they hear voices. They hear a voice call for Merlin, not the, not, not the magician. He was a minister. And uh, the voice that calls for him is Gaspar. And upon hearing this, Louise calls out to her father. And he hears her father ask Merlin, will you pray with me? So at this point, Louise gets up, she, she gets out of bed, and she goes over toward the door, and Charles is still there, just he's kind of holding her back from the door, listening to what's going on, and they hear Merlin and Gaspar praying together. So Charles, at this point, 
he obviously has an idea of what's going on. So he turns and he grabs her and he just tells her, stay here. But now there's other voices ringing out in the hallways and we hear Gaspar say, my Lord Colony, God calls us to himself. It was one of Gaspar's close trusted friends who was there. So at this, Luis, she just sort of freezes there and she hears the response of her father calling back. And he says this, he says, I am prepared to die. I need no more help of men. Therefore, save yourselves, my friends, if it is still possible. So Charles hears this and he kind of, kind of pushes Luis back into the room and he shuts the door and leaves. So he takes off to help or do whatever he can. Maybe, maybe to get help is probably what was going on. So Luis is now alone. She's in this dark room. She doesn't really know what's going on. She just knows it's not good and there's nothing that she can do. Her husband has left, presumably to help her father. But she's just standing in the darkness, not knowing what's going on. She hears shouts, more commotion, and eventually she hears gunshots. So Charles has left, and he makes his way to the Louvre, which is close by. And he gets to the Louvre, he goes inside, and in the hallway he is confronted by armed men. And he is told at that point that he needs to recant his faith. And he refuses and is killed immediately. He becomes one of the first victims of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Luis's father, who, in the defense of the men, did tell everyone to save themselves, was abandoned by everyone but one, Nicholas Muse, who stayed by his side. They would be murdered together that night. Gaspar's body was thrown out of the window, or perhaps out of the roof. The accounts vary. Either way, it wasn't nice. His body's thrown onto the, onto the, uh, the street below as a symbol of the victory of the Catholics. And the people on the street would cut off his head and hands, and that was the beginning of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Now, somehow, we don't know how, Luis was able to escape. She was probably on foot, probably alone, and we know one thing. She didn't escape because she was young and that she was a woman. As Titu mentioned last week, the Catholics killed all of the Protestants that they found, men, women, and children. All of the gates except for two in Paris had been closed. Somehow she managed to find one of them that was open and made her way out. So she leaves alone, and she immediately goes to her father's castle in Châtillon and Burgundy to warn her family. She actually made it there so quickly that they hadn't even heard anything about the massacre so far. So she tells them what's going on, and they're completely shocked by this. They don't have any time to really even think or prepare, so they just flee with the clothing on their backs. They decided it'd be better to split up, so Luis and a cousin fled together. Two older brothers managed to escape together. Their stepmother mother, uh, was able to flee. The youngest brother was captured on his uh, journey and was returned to Paris. Luis made it to Geneva, and then she made her way to Bern and finally to Basel. So on one night, Luis became a widow, an exile, an orphan, and in poverty. 
St. Bartholomew's Massacre would continue for three days in Paris. As many as 4,000 Protestants in Paris alone were killed simply for being Protestants. And the king was really powerless to control the situation. It was just complete chaos. As news of the massacre in Paris spread to the surrounding provinces, violence would break out in those provinces as well. And from August to September, the massacre would continue, and at least 10,000 more Protestants would be killed in those surrounding provinces. And as Titu mentioned last week, the French really killed their own faith in that time, and France has never really recovered from it. The next 10 years of Louis's life are largely unknown. We do know uh, that at one point in this 10-year period, she returned to Paris to try to reclaim some of her father's uh, possessions. But the next major event is in 1583. Uh, William of Orange in the Netherlands would propose marriage to Louise. She would accept. And he was content marrying a poor woman who had no dowry. And he was... Uh, she was very happy to marry a man who had admirable goals. They married at Antwerp and took up residence at Delft. And though the Dutch people were suspicious of a French woman marrying a Dutch man, they would soon come to love her. She was described by, in this way by one biographer. She was a small, well-formed woman with delicate features, exquisite complexion, and very beautiful dark eyes, which seemed in after years to be dim with unshed tears, with remarkable powers of mind and angelic sweetness of disposition. William's daughter, who was also named Louise, was very pleased with the new wife, saying, the new mother loves us all and takes very good care of us. Louise and William would have a son together, Prince Frederick Henry, who would later, later on take his father's title and position. Now, Louise was fearful that her new husband would also be murdered, and this was not an unfounded fear. This wasn't just some irrational fear that she had because her previous husband had been murdered. There was a reason for it. And in fact, there was an assassination attempt on William's life in 1582 that had failed. So King Philip II of Spain, not a nice guy, had offered a large reward for William's life. So there was a, there was a war going on between Spain and the Netherlands. So there was a very real threat to William's life, and it would soon be revealed that the man who would carry out the murder of William was already in the palace with him. That man, Gerard, was a Frenchman. He was a staunch Catholic. Uh, he was from a part of France that's currently been controlled by Spain, and he had heard of the price on William's head and had plan been planning the murder for six years. He was fed by greed for money and a desire for glory. He declared that he would have been willing to travel a thousand leagues over rivers and mountains to render this glorious service to the king, the church, and the Lord. So he came to Delft in 1584 under a false name, and he took a position in William's service. To fake adherence to the Reformed faith, he would carry a Bible with him. When he got there, he appeared before William shoeless, and William was generous. He gave him some money to go buy shoes. With that money, he went and bought pistols. So they're at dinner one night, Luis and, and uh, William, and there's 
several people there in the room eating with them. And she, she's looking around the room, and she spots this guy, Gerard. And she's watching him, and his demeanor makes her suspicious. So she leans over to her husband and says, Who is that sinister-looking man? And William looks over to Gerard, and they meet eyes, and he kind of nods at him, giving him the sign, Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out. He says to his wife, uh, That man wants a passport, and I intend to give it to him. So Gerard leaves the room kind of awkwardly, and soon after, William follows, and they, they leave the room and go into a hallway. At the foot of the stairs is Gerard, and he's standing there, and he has papers with him. He's got papers in one hand, and in the other hand, he has a pistol that's concealed. And so he kind of reaches out to give him the papers, and William has a servant there with him, and he kind of looks away for a moment, and as he looks away, Gerard pulls the pistol and shoots him three times, point-blank range. William cries out at that time, Oh my God, have mercy on my soul and upon this poor people. So he knew, he knew what was going on. His servants would carry him to his bed, and he died immediately, July 10th, 1584. Louise obviously was shook by this event. She grieved. She's 32 year old, years old, and she is now twice widowed. She, under her care, has a, a handful of stepchildren and an 18-year-old son, Maurice, who is now the leader of the Netherlands, the Netherlands who's at war with Spain. She also has her own six-month-old son to take care of, and she has no income at all. So Louise sorrowed, but she sorrowed in a godly way, and she trusted the Lord One biographer wrote of her, she had the advantage to be sprung from the greatest man in Europe and to have had two husbands of very eminent virtues, the last of whom left behind him an immortal reputation. But she likewise had the misfortune to lose them all three by hasty and violent deaths, her husband, her father, and her second husband. Her life having been nothing but a contentious series of affliction, able to make any sink under them, but a soul like hers had resigned itself entirely to the will of God. Louise had only been married to William for 15 months when she was murdered. She would write to her late husband's brother that she hardly knew how she was going to provide for her family. She had no income, but the Dutch provinces were very generous. They loved her, and they gave her a yearly allowance of 20,000 francs, and that would provide for her for the rest of her life. Now, with the Spanish and the Dutch at war, Luis, under, you know, with all these tragic events happening around her, she did not crumble under the pressure. She set to the task of advising and influencing in any way that she could. Like I said, Maurice was only 18 years old at the time, and so he would need all the help that he could get. Luis established international connections with the British, and the alliance that she helped establish would actually bring British troops to the aid of the Dutch. So uh, Marguerite had influenced the Queen of England, and Louise has, is now writing to the Queen of England asking for help to push back the Spanish army. And the Queen of England said, uh, Queen Elizabeth said yes, 
They send troops to the Netherlands, and they are able to push back the, the, uh, the Spanish army, who had taken over some Dutch cities, and at that time a treaty is signed in August of that same year. So this gives Luis a reprieve from the intensity of the conflict that's going on, but she would not rest. She would continue to be busy. She continued to be active in foreign affairs. She continued to advise Maurice on political matters, and she continued to having correspondence with British and French leaders. The education of Williams' daughters were in her charge. She faithfully instructed five of them with others being with, uh, with other relatives. It was said that she was so faithful in her duties that the some of these children resembled her own character more than their own natural mothers. France was never far from Louise's mind, and when Henry de Navarre became king of France, uh, he made it safe for Huguenots to live there, and then eventually he made it legal for Huguenots to live there. So she returned in 1598. She would move back to the Netherlands in 1603, when religious controversies broke out between Calvinists and Arminians. So this is the kind of character she is. There's conflict in the Netherlands, so she goes there. She doesn't say, boy, am I glad I'm not there anymore. No, she returns. She moved to The Hague, and she helped find a French Reformed church there. And there's this, this great controversy that we know about and her pastor, however, became something of a leader in the Armenian side of the controversy. And so she's human, and we don't really know exactly why, but she sided with her Armenian pastor in this controversy. Now, she may have just been loyal to the man who had helped found this church. Uh, we, we don't really know exactly why, but I think we're going to see later. It wasn't necessarily because she was convinced that Armenianism was theologically correct. But she sided on, that, on the, the wrong side of that controversy, so when the Armenians were told to leave by the Dutch government, she would return to France. This is 1620, and in that year she became sick, and when news got out that she was sick, the Roman Catholics came to her side because they wanted her to convert back to the Roman Catholic faith. Cardinal Richelieu was known for being a hard and manipulative man, and he was sent to her side. When he entered the room, she's there in her sickbed, and there's two men at her side. One man is a Reformed pastor, a known Reformed pastor, and the other one is a friend who's also a Protestant. So he enters the room, he opens the door, and he sees this, and the first thing he says is, Madam, Take care of your soul. You have two evil spirits beside you. So that's the kind of greeting that she was given. And then he, he, he went forward and professed his deep anxiety for her soul. And he told her that her soul was in grave danger and that she needs to return to the Catholic faith before she dies. But her faith was strong, and she did not relent. He was unsuccessful in her endeavor, and she held, first, held firm to her faith in Christ. Now, she did, she did side with the Armenian pastor in the Netherlands, and yet before her death, she professed that she was unmoved 
in her Reformed beliefs. In the face of that Roman cardinal, she said, I rely solely on Christ's merits for my salvation. And later that, uh, that October, on October 9th, 1620, she would pass away. In her will, she provided for many of her servants and many believers in, in a number of Reformed churches and Protestants all over, of all stripes, uh, would mourn her death. So that is the life of Louise de Colony. So what can we learn from her? I think the first thing that we can learn is do not love this world. This is, this is what her father had encouraged her to in those letters that he wrote to her when she was young. Do not love, do not mourn over the things of this world if we have treasures in heaven because nobody can take away those treasures in heaven. And so we should reflect on this attitude that she had in her own life. What are the treasures that we have? Are the treasures that we have those things in heaven that can't be taken away from us? Are those the things that we look forward to? Are those the things that we hold on to? Or is it our car, our reputation, our material possessions, our house, our health, even our own family? Think if our own family was taken from us suddenly in the same way that Luis's was or something like that, would we still trust Christ? Would we act like Job who said, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or would we be like Job's wife who said, curse God and died? We ought to search our hearts and examine ourselves. What do we love and who do we love? Do we love Christ or do we love this world? Remember what 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not, the, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Commenting on this passage, Calvin says, This vanity, that is the love of this world, this vanity must first be torn away from us if we are to love God. And though Louise could have recanted her faith, she had many opportunities to do this. She could have fled to Geneva and thought about it, and said, you know, I want to return to France. I would, rather, I would rather just go with the flow, go back to being Catholic and have a nice, comfortable life in France. But she didn't do that. She didn't treasure this world more than, more than Christ. Secondly, we learned from her to be unmovable in our faith. And the first thing that we need to be unmovable in our faith is to know the Scriptures and to know the God of the Scriptures. I mentioned in a Wednesday lesson a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, that Ligonier did a survey, and they found that 43% of evangelicals agreed with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. The evangelical church does not know the scriptures, if that's true. They do not know the God of the scriptures if they agree with that statement. And that's a warning to us. We need to know the scriptures. We need to know it inside and out. We need to know it better than our favorite baseball team 
our favorite TV show, our favorite book series, our favorite music, whatever it is that we love, we need to love the scriptures first. The God of Luis sustained her and provided richly for her. That same God is your God. The God of Moses, who led the children of Israel out of Egypt, who made them cross the Red Sea on dry land, he is your God. The God of David, who defeated Goliath, is your God. The God of Daniel, who closed the mouth of the lion, is your God. The God of the Bible, who has done amazing things, he is your God, and you have to know your God if you will be unmovable in your faith. Titu mentioned Hebrews 11 last week. Read Hebrews 11. That is your God. Despite the loss of her father, two husbands, all of her worldly possessions, and being in exile for most of her life, Louise was unmoved in her faith. And we can too, because her God is our God. Thirdly, we need to resign ourselves completely to the will of God. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. And Christ said before going to the cross, not as I will, but as you will. And we should ask ourselves, truly, can we say that? Can we really say, if I perish, I perish? Remember what Matthew 16, 26 said, For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If we are unwilling to resign ourselves completely to the will of God and trust in his goodness and love toward us, we will be lost. Though we don't know a lot about Luisa's attitude, uh, the testimony of what we do know is that wherever she found herself, she was willing to do whatever it was that God had for her to do in that time, whether it was advising her stepson on political matters, whether it was educating her stepchildren, whether it was defying a Roman Catholic cardinal on her deathbed, she was content to do whatever God would have her do in that situation. And that's what we need as well. And then lastly, we need to learn how to use our suffering well. We need to make sure that we don't let our suffering distract us or derail our obedience. We ought to be thankful for the suffering that we have. We ought to learn from our suffering, and we ought to meditate on Christ's suffering for us. Now, most of us don't suffer hardly at all. In our time, I think we have almost bought into the health and wealth gospel unwittingly. We watch the news, and the news tells us that gas prices are going up and that the economy isn't good, and we get all agitated and irritated by this, and it consumes our thoughts. Luis was being killed, her family was being murdered in the streets and she remained faithful. We get a hangnail, and we feel like, man, I need to write a psalm about my sufferings. <laughs> so we need to learn from those who have gone before us, who really have suffered, what it looks like to suffer well and to suffer for Christ. Let's close in prayer. 
Dear Lord, we thank you for your faithful servants who've gone before us from Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Daniel and all the, all the men and the women in, in the Bible who we can read about every day to the, the servants throughout history like Luis and Anna and Marguerite and those who we'll learn about in the coming weeks. We thank you, Lord, that we can read your book and the book of history and learn from these people how to live well, how to be faithful to Christ, how to suffer well for our faith. And we ask you, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that we would love your word, that we would love you, that we would learn to be faithful to Christ, that we would be unmoved in our faith, that we would suffer well for you. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us repentance from our sins, repentance from our complacency, from our lukewarmness toward you, And we ask, Lord, that you would revive us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.